1: Welcome to the A to Z of David Bowie.
0: I'm Mark Riley, and that colourful character is Rob Hughes. And we've got a special announcement, haven't we, Bob? We have, Mark. So, to start, thank you for taking so much interest in our journey through the life of David Bowie. It's a long and winding road. That's the Beatles, not Bowie, Bob. It's a long and winding road, but we don't look back in anger. Oasis we look back in anger. That's more like it. Oh, shut up. Anyway, we've got some news for you. As you'll be aware, the A to Z of David Bowie is free to download. (laughs) Lunacy. But, if you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things and for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Why? So, now you're thinking, $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered it to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right, Mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular film Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and
1: perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark,
0: Howard Nock, and Jason Reed. Visiting various Bowie Places of Interest and much more besides all this for just $5 a month so if you can't resist simply go to patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things or one word and join up there's also a website bowiecheapthings.com book early
1: s is for well there's two here actually bob station to station
0: one of the greatest albums ever made oh indeed it's the 10th album in fact by bowie released by rca in 1976 commonly regarded one of his most significant works it was the vehicle for his performance persona The Thin White Duke more of which later so the album was recorded after he completed shooting Nick Rogues The Man Who Fell to
1: Earth and the cover artwork featured a still from the movie during the sessions Bowie was heavily dependent on drugs especially cocaine and later claimed that he recalled almost
0: nothing of the production Mm, musically Station to Station was a transitional album for Bowie developing the funk and soul music of his previous album Young Americans, whilst also moving towards synthesizers and motoric rhythms influenced by German electronic bands like Neu and Kraftwerk. So, this trend, of course, would culminate in some of his most acclaimed work, the so called Berlin Trilogy. It was a confused period in his life, wasn't it? It was very much so, wasn't it? And you know, he always said in interviews that he didn't remember making this, which, which can't really be true, but I think it was a way of him just deflecting questions about that era because I know, you know, it wasn't, it was a such a difficult time for him, wasn't it, on a personal level? Well, we'll talk about the Thin White Duke and exactly who that was in a short while, Hmm. I think.
1: Uh, But I do remember there was a quote from Bowie saying that the only thing that he remembered from the sessions was lying under a desk (laughs) and shouting to Earl Slick, (laughs) do the Chuck Berry riff at the end of Station to Station. (laughs) But anyway, uh, Bowie himself said that Station to Station was a plea to come back to Europe for me. The album's lyrics reflected reflected his preoccupations with Frederick Nietzsche Alistair Crowley, Mythology and Religion. So, preceded by the single golden years, Station to Station made the top five in both the UK and US charts. By January 2017, the album had sold over 4.5 million units worldwide. I've got seven of those copies.
0: Oh, get yeah, I've probably got about four. There you go. Anyway, let's get to the background, shall we? So, according to Bowie's biographer David Buckley, the LA-based Bowie fueled by an astronomic cocaine habit and subsisting on a diet of peppers and milk, spent much of 1970 75 and 76, in a state of psychic terror. Stories, mostly from one interview, uh, pieces of which found their way into Playboy and Rolling Stone, circulated of the singer living in a house full of ancient Egyptian artefacts, burning black candles, seeing bodies fall past his window, having his semen stolen by witches, receiving secret messages from the Rolling Stones, and living in morbid fear of fellow Alistair Crowley aficionado Jimmy Page. So there's a. I tell you what, there is a biopic in that one paragraph, Bob. (laughs) There is indeed. Also, what I didn't mention there was the fact that at one point I think he had his swimming pool exercise, didn't he? Supposedly, and I wonder if the message from the Rolling Stones was from Mick Jagger saying,
1: "Yeah, David, stop nicking my ideas, will you?" That, that was that was quite good for that me. That was incredible. That would terrify you, wouldn't it? Really, let's <laughs> yeah. face it. Uh, Bowie would later say of L.A. that flipping place should be wiped off the face of the earth. He really didn't like his no. stay there, did he? And uh, I don't know if we're going to get into this at any
0: point in here, but it was Glenn Hughes's house from Deep Purple that he stayed in, wasn't he? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean Glenn Hughes wasn't looking after himself well either at that time, was it? It's probably one of the best person to hang out with. I think it's like a great episode of um, Stellar Street, isn't it? Can you imagine, I like, see, so you've got
1: Bowie in there with like his urine, supposedly, in the fridge with a priest having a go at his swimming pool, oh, yeah. you know? And then Glenn Hughes comes back and goes, oh, David, what's going on in here? Look at the mess. <laughs> what's this in the fridge? You know? I'd, I'd pay to watch that. Let's oh, I, oh I, I fancy something to eat. What have I got? Well, I've got the option of some green peppers, some milk or some urine. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a good night, in, is not it? Not really. Well, anyway, it was on the set of his first major film, so not including the image then, no. at the Man Who Fell to Earth, that <laughs> Bowie began writing a pseudo-autobiography called The Return of the Thin White Duke. He was also composing music on the understanding that he wrote to provide for the film's soundtrack. Though this didn't happen in the end, at Bowie's recommendation, John Phillips of the Mamas and Poppers would write and produce all the original music for the film instead, as we mm. know. It was released quite recently,
0: again, on vinyl, wasn't it? And I bought it. I bought it. Bought it to. Yeah. Uh, director Nicholas Rogue warned the star that the part of Thomas Jerome Newton would likely remain with him for some time after production completed on the film. With Rogue's agreement, Bowie developed his own look for the film and this carried through to his public image. And also, you know, uh, he must have really stayed with him because it, it carried on to two album covers immediately afterwards, didn't it? it did, Station to Station and Low. The Thin White Duke became the mouthpiece for Station to Station and often during the next six months for Bowie himself, impeccably dressed in white shirt, Black trousers and waistcoat, the Duke was an aloof character who sang songs of agonized intensity yet felt nothing, or ice masquerading as fire, as somebody once called him.
1: Yeah, and uh, just going back to the covers that we're talking about, Station
0: yes. to Station and the uh, the ensuing Low, mm.
1: uh, it's funny how iconic Low is as an album cover because yeah. you look at it and it shouldn't be a great album cover, really, for what it is. It's, an out- it's a still from a film. He's wearing a
0: duffel coat.
1: Yeah. You know, it's just, it's not, it's not ideal. It's not I mean, really. I, I've it- got a duffel. And I, 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 people don't stop and look at me when I'm just stood there on the, the, the tram stop.
0: Well, maybe if you stirred wistfully over a lake, you know, in, in winter, they might do, but unlikely. Unlikely. But the thing
1: is that I don't know if you saw this, but quite recently there was a photograph, a promo shot of Jodie Whittaker for Doctor Who, mm. and, it, and it looked like an absolute replica of Lowe. Oh, really? I know I we're talking Station to Station here, but we're <laughs> yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. the same period of uh, well cinematography yes, and, and yeah. stills taken from the film. Uh, but it is iconic, and uh, we'll get to the cover of Station to station a little bit later on. We will. Okay, so the Thin White Duke persona has also been described as a mad aristocrat, an amoral zombie, an emotionless Aryan Superman. For Bowie himself, the Duke was a nasty character indeed. Now, I'm just wondering, Bob, you know, how much of this is Bowie's displeasure with himself? Okay, so at this point in time, he he wasn't looking after himself, as we've just said, and he'd fallen out with nearly everybody, hadn't he? Yeah, he had. Coco, Omnipresent, yeah, of course. Iggy Pop around about this time is soul buddy. You know, and we yeah. know that or Jeff McCormack, Warren Peace, also. Mm. Uh, but most other people have gone by the wayside. So his his relationship with Angie was was touchy. Yeah, he's also been through the rigmarole with Tony DeVries yeah. He'd fallen out with all of the spiders. Mm. And he had a bad drug habit. Uh, he, he must have really like not, had a little bit of displeasure with the way his life was going at that point in time. So you wonder if the uh, Thin White Duke... And, and Bowie often hid behind his characters, yes. didn't yeah, he? Yeah, of course. You're just wondering if the Thin White Duke, this persona, was actually, in a way, Davy Bowie. And him looking at himself and thinking, I'm a mess, because he did. He ran away from all of that
0: lifestyle shortly afterwards, yeah. didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he did. Well, the interesting thing is about, you know, when you look at the contemporary interviews of Bowie around that time... At no point does he say, you know, I'm I'm unhappy. You know, we talked a lot about kind of giving up rock and roll, didn't he, for a long time? Yeah. But you know, at the time, he was always talking up the Thin White Duke character as this positive thing in his life, and he's—I know he had to because he was on tour, so he would be doing that anyway. It was only in retrospect that he looked back and didn't really have a lot of uh, great things to say about it. That's when he started calling himself, yeah, I was a nasty character, I was aloof, and all this stuff. So you see this in in hindsight, don't you? At the time, as you say, you know, it's something that he was just—it was convenient for him to hide behind for a bit. And also, I mean, at this point in time, he, was, he had the opportunity to make some
1: money. That's how he saw it. And he, he had been kind of involved in some dodgy contracts, mm. which really didn't give him the fruits of his labour. And so he'd come out the other side of the thing with Tony De Vries. He was probably looking forward to actually getting his hands on some money. Uh, but at that point in time, he had nobody around him that he could really look at, you know, as an
0: example of, of steering him in the right direction. Was it
1: David Lippmann? was
0: it? the, uh, the uh, it was Guy called Michael Littman? was Michael Littman. But I think that was kind of a very, very difficult relationship as well. Hmm. He was having kind of a few falling outs with him. That was the thing. There didn't seem to be anybody yeah. around him that had his best interests at heart. Apart from Coco. Yeah, so you can understand the paranoia that's kind of, you know, fed into this character. Yeah. It's like magnified from Bowie himself. Yeah, okay, so Station to Station was recorded in late 1975 at Cherokee Studios in... In LA okay
1: and in 1981 enemy editors Roy Cart and Charles Charles Murray we often say that but it's a book that they did together so we don't know who did which bit uh, <laughs> yes. suggested that it was made in 10 days of feverish activity when Bowie decided there was no hope of his producing a soundtrack for the man
0: who fell to earth however later on it came to light that the album was recorded over a couple of months with the sessions beginning in late September or early October 75 and ending in late November so in other words it was done before Bowie began his abortive sessions on the soundtrack at various times it was to be called the return of the thin white duke or golden Years, Station to Station was co-produced by Harry Maslin, who is Bowie's associate, of course, for uh, Fame and Across the Universe on Young Americans. So Tony Visconti, who after a three-year absence had recently returned to the Bowie fold, mixing Diamond
1: Dogs and co-producing David Live and Young Americans, was not involved due to competing schedules. However, the record did cement the band lineup that will see Bowie through the rest of the decade, with bassist
0: George Murray joining Young Americans drummer Dennis Davis and rhythm guitarist Carlos Alomar. Well, this is crucial, isn't it? This. Yeah. So the recording process developed with this team set the pattern for Bowie's albums up to and including scary monsters in 1980 backing tracks laid down by Murray, Davis and Alomar, saxophone, keyboard and lead guitar overdubs, here by Bowie, Roy Bittan and Earl Slick respectively, lead vocals and finally various production tricks to just complete the whole thing. Okay, so according to Bowie uh, this is a quote, I got some quite extraordinary things out of Earl
1: Slick. I think it captured his imagination to make noises on guitar and textures rather than playing the right notes. Alomar recalled it was one of the most glorious albums that I've ever done.
0: We experimented so much on it. Yeah, Harry Mas- and said, I loved those sessions because we were totally open and experimental in our approach. Bowie himself remembered almost nothing of the album's production, as we mentioned, not even the studio, later admitting, I know it was in LA because I've read it was. Uh, the singer was not alone in his use of cocaine during the sessions. Carlos Alomar commenting, if there's a line of coke, which is going to keep you awake until 8am so you can do your guitar part, well, you do the line of coke. The coke use is driven by the inspiration. We've talked about this before, haven't we? You know, it wasn't just a recreational thing. It was a, it was a means for Bowie to keep on working while yeah. the iron was hot. Yeah, I mean, and other people have done it as well. You no, know, you experiment with drugs and you see where it takes you. But it,
1: but this is in a professional kind of mode, isn't it? Mm. So you're doing it and you're pushing yourself, almost using yourself as a guinea pig yeah. to see how much your body can take and where it will take you.
0: Yeah, and how long you can stay awake.
1: Absolutely. Okay, so uh, here we go. Like Bowie, Earl Slick had somewhat vague memories of of the recording. That album's a little fuzzy for the obvious reasons. We were in the studio and it was nuts. Lots of hours and lots of late nights. In 2017, Carlos Alomar recalled to Rolling Stone, when we were in work mode, it was always about the work. If it was fueled by coke or whatever, David was always able to manage the decision making and it was always about the same
0: concern for him. What are the lyrics and what am I going to talk about? Yeah, he continued, that professionalism was what enabled us to keep going. He would write something, express something, get to work Work and let's make the donuts. Great phrase. Right. Uh, from the same article in Rolling Stone, Earl Slick told of how Bowie's feverish working methods meant that musicians got used to being called into the studio at any time of day or night. He said, I remember one night we didn't even have the studio booked and I was at the Rainbow Bar and Grill. And he said, as we used to say, I was under the weather. Suddenly, one of the roadies
1: comes in. They search the whole place and find me at a back table. He says, Time to go to work. I say, It's one in the morning and I'm drunk. And he said, That's okay, David's at the studio. There's a Car outside, so I paid my tab, jumped in the car, and worked all night. I mean, that was not an unusual thing to happen. It's a great image, that,
0: isn't it? You know yeah. what state was in when he got there. Pianist Roy Bittan's involvement in the sessions was pretty spontaneous, too. Again, this is from Rolling Stone in uh, 2017. He says, I was staying at the Sunset Marquee in Los Angeles when we, meaning the E Street Band with Springsteen, of course, were on the Born to Run tour in 1975. I bumped into Earl Slick at the hotel and he said, I can't believe you're here. We were just talking about you. And when I arrived, at Next day at the studio David said to me do you know who Professor Longhair is? I said, know him. I saw him play at a
1: little roadhouse in Houston about three weeks ago. I wound up doing an imitation of Professor Longhair interpreting a David Bowie song. We began with TVC15, and I wound up playing on every song besides Wild is the Wind. It's one of my favourite projects that I ever worked on. And I never thought about that. I was wondering where that <laughs> piano came from. And, you know, you try and place it yeah. and think where it might have been lifted from. Definitely Professor Longhair. Yeah, it, you
0: know, New Argentina Orleans Jazz. And all that. Yeah, completely. Of course, as we know Roy then went on to play on Ashes to Ashes as well, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. The sleeve front cover used a black and white still from The Man Who Fell to Earth, in which Bowie, as the character Thomas Jerome Newton, steps into the space capsule that will return him to his home planet. Bowie had insisted on the cropped black and white image as he felt that in the original colour full-sized image, the sky looked
1: artificial. When Ryko Disc reissued Bowie's catalogue in the early 90s, the colour version was used. The back cover showed Bowie sketching the Kabbalah Sephirot, is it? Mm. Uh, with chalk, something he had been doing on the set of the film. Now, you know, the original cover artwork... Yeah. It, there were some made up, yeah. uh, okay, and, and they sold on eBay and they go for thousands yeah. of pounds. And there was also a bootleg version of it, which was sold on eBay, like actually made up. Because the other ones were just like the flat piece, you yes, know, the am yeah, with, yeah. with all the cut lines on yeah. it. But somebody made an, an actual bootleg of the sleeve, all made up, and I bought one. And that's really collectible as well. Yeah, wow, it's strange. Okay. And I've also got in that cover, I've got a white label of Station to Station. Have you really? I have. Yeah. Ooh, really. Which and do you know what? I mean it is crazy and I hate even to say it, but I forgot I had it. I was looking through all the stuff and I pulled it out and I thought, Oh yeah, that's that bootleg cover and I pulled and I thought, right well, there's a record in right. it. And I pulled it out and it is a proper legit um, a station to station test pressing and i, I sent a photograph of it to uh, to mark adams yeah. DavidBowie.com mm. and he went yeah i remember you buying it Oh, right, okay so <laughs> he's got a memory and i haven't
0: fair enough where did you buy that from just instantly? on ebay on i got eBay. it on ebay right.
1: but also just want to mention at this point in time and it has been said before um but apparently the the idea for the cover of um station to station being black and white mm. and being very um plain Bowie saw Dr. Field
0: goes down by the jetty. That's right, yes, that's right, which has the same kind of thing, doesn't it? You it's know, the black-white it, image It's you know, very, in a very similar. Yeah, yeah. okay. okay. Worth mentioning. Anyway, to styles and themes now of Station to Station, often cited as a transitional album for Bowie, as I mentioned, Nicholas Pegg in The Complete David Bowie called it a precise halfway point on the journey from young Americans to low. Enemy pair Roy Carr and Charles Shaw Murray again wrote that it effectively divides the 70s for Bowie. It ties off the era of Ziggy Stardust and Plastic Soul and introduces the first taste of the new music that was to follow with low Indeed, in terms of Bowie's own output, Station to Station showed the influence of
1: krautrock rock and electronic music by bands like Noy, Can, and Kraftwerk. Thematically, the album revisited concepts uh, dealt with in songs such as the Superman from The Man Who Sold The World, uh, Quicksand from Hunky Dory, Nietzsche's Overman, the occultism with Alistair Crowley, Nazi fascination with Grail mythology and the Kabbalah. Yeah, There's deep... plenty going on there, it's a cocktail lot, isn't it? It is,
0: deep themes. The musical style of Golden Years, the first track recorded for the album, built on the funk and soul of young Americans with a well a harsher edge, you might say, has been described as carrying with it an air of regret for missed opportunities and past pleasures. Bowie said it was written for and rejected by Elvis Presley. We've mentioned this, haven't we, well Bowie's then wife Angie, claimed it was written for her. Well, I thought it was written for me. Though a top ten single on both sides of the Atlantic, Golden Years was
1: rarely performed live on the subsequent Isolar tour. Stay was another riff-driven funk piece,
0: recorded very much in our cocaine frenzy, according to Carlos Alomar. Now, the Christian element of the album was most obvious in the hymn-like word on a wing. Bowie himself has claimed that, in this song at least, the passion is genuine. When performing it live in 1999, the singer described it as coming from the darkest days of my life. I'm sure, actually, it was a call for help. It's a wonderful song. Um,
1: Well, as is the closing ballad, Wild is the Wind was the album's sole cover, and had been praised as one of the finest vocal performances of Bowie's career. Bowie was inspired to record it after he met the singer-pianist songwriter Nina Simone, whose version is on her self-titled album of 1966. So I play her version as well. It's around about six minutes long also. Mm. Um, I play it on the uh, Six Music program. But it... Bowie's performance on that is right up there with Sweet Thing and Candidate. It is, isn't it? It is, it is really just um,
0: absolutely magnificent. It is. I mean, that's one of the features for me anyway of Station to Station. The fact really it's when Bowie, not that he hadn't come into his own, he came into his own vocal, like I was filled with Diamond Dogs, but he's Station to Station, he's really got it nailed, hasn't he? You know, Young Americans built that up, and then Station to Station is a little bit kind of more stripped away, and it's Bowie in, in brilliant mode, almost like Sinatra in places. You know, really crooning. Absolutely, and and the. The thing is that he, you know his voice
1: is uh, like uh, like a crew, now. We know you just mentioned Frank Sinatra, mm. and he was big on Bing Crosby, as yeah, we know yeah. again for better or for worse. Uh, but he, he started to bring out more of that kind of baritone um, timbre to his voice, mm. didn't he? And so it started with, a, from, as, as far as I can remember, anyway, with Sweet Thing and Candidate, yeah. with, with it, that really bold, deep, resonant voice. Yeah. But it's all the way through on Station to it Station. Is. It's like it is like he kind of found his voice. Yeah. But also, you know, a lot of singers they sing in a way where which isn't good for the voice. I know that Susie Sue, she did the same thing. She sung with that real kind of baritone thing. She was a massive Bowie fan. Yeah, of course. And it really, really buggered up her throat. Right. She had to stop singing like that, you know. It's like, it's it's not na- it's not yeah, natural, sure. you know. Yeah. And so you've got to learn to train your voice. So you sing how you want to sing, uh, but eventually it can catch up with you. Right. And you just sing that Bowie. It's, all, it's not operatic, but, you know, it's getting on for yeah, it.
0: Yeah, it is, definitely. And also, I think it just shows his confidence because a lot of those arrangements, like Word on a Wing or uh, Wild as the Wind, his voice is at the forefront so there's no trickery going on he's not trying to mask himself you just get the impression that i know what i'm doing here and i am confident in this voice remember what he says about not remembering the sessions there's a certain amount of confidence steely confidence behind all this stuff well his
1: voice if you listen to aladdin saying his voice is quite reedy yeah it is so If you compare yeah. the
0: voice David bowie's voice on aladdin saying or ziggy hmm. uh, and you compare it to station to station there's a marked difference isn't there there is huge difference in fact Anyway, so uh, Bowie had met Simone in 1974 and reportedly told her, Where you're coming from, there are very few of us out there. Simone later said of Bowie, He's got more sense than anybody I've ever known. David ain't from here. The image of the man who fell to earth, Thomas Jerome Newton, sitting in front of dozens of TV monitors, is said to have partly inspired the album's most upbeat track, TVC15, supposedly also about Iggy Pop's girlfriend being eaten by a TV set. It has been called the most oblique tribute to the Yardbirds imaginable. I can't see the Yardbirds <laughs> reference there. No, I can't either. What did just spring to my mind then is I've I've
1: been to Graceland, Elvis Presley's place, yeah. and we've all seen those photographs of his room with loads and loads of yeah. TVs in. Yeah. I would imagine that there's a little bit of Elvis this in there as well. That only just came to me and of course I could be wrong, I usually am. No. The title track has been described as heralding a new era of experimentalism for Bowie. Station to station was in two parts. A slow portentous piano driven march introduced by the sound of an approaching train juxtaposed with Earl Slick's agitated guitar feedback followed by an up-tempo rock blues section. So we know that the train bit at the beginning was, yeah. uh, was inspired by Kraftwerk. Yeah, P- absolutely. Pretty damn directly, wasn't it? Yeah. The title track reflected Bowie's new interest in electronics and industrial rhythms, as in sound as texture, as he put it at the time. My favourite group is a German band,
0: Kraftwerk. It plays noise music to increase productivity. <laughs> That's great, that, isn't it? I was just thinking, driving over, that you know, of all the opening tracks on a Bowie album, probably Station to Station is the one that you would single out that really sets up the entire thing. Maybe it's no game from Scary Monsters too, but when you look at like opening tracks of Bowie albums, Station to Station is the one, isn't it, really? It is. It sends a chill, doesn't it? It's also five years... Yeah, of course, of course. How mm. could I forget that? There's
1: that. Too. And then it'd be a bit like the Monty Python. What did the Romans ever oh, do for yeah. us? You oh, go, dory. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But anyway, yeah, I know, yeah, what, you know. I know what you mean. It's, it's a chilling moment. It's yeah. just absolutely it, brilliant.
0: It just sums up everything he was about at that time. A Years later, in 1999, Bowie told Uncut magazine, sadly, Mark, not me. I think this was Chris Roberts uh, did the interview. Since station to station, the hybridization of R&B and electronics had been a goal of mine. Despite the noise of a train in the opening moments, Bowie says that the title, refers not so much to railway stations as to the stations of the cross, while the line from Kithir to Malkuth relates to mystical places in the Kabbalah, mixing Christian and Jewish allusions. Fixation with the
1: occult was further evident in such phrases as white stains, the name of the book of poetry by Alastair Crowley. The lyrics also gave notice of Bowie's recent drug use. It's not the side effects of the cocaine. I'm thinking that it must be love. I'm not even being funny here. I mean, I was like, you know, 15 at the time, yes. uh, but I thought he was cooking. Oh, Mark. Oh, no. I mean, I'm hoping that everybody at home, is they're, like, they're probably saying, what a dickhead. But I'm hoping just to, a couple of them are going, oh, bless. Yeah. Oh, bless you, Mark. But I did. I thought it's not the side effects of the cooking. Oh, that would be a whole different album, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it would. Uh, with its Krautrock influence, it was the album's clearest foretaste of Bowie's subsequent Berlin trilogy. Speaking to Cream magazine in 1977, Bowie proclaimed that Station to Station was devoid of spirit. Even the love songs are
0: detached. But I think it's fascinating. Every song on Station to Station eventually appeared on a single. Golden Years was released in November 75, two months before the album came out. Bowie allegedly got drunk to perform it on uh, TV for the American show Soul Train. He looks like he is, not he? Yeah, One he's away fav- with the fairies, yeah. One of my favourite clips of Bowie, uh, resulting in the film clip seen on music video, programmes. It got to number 8 in the UK, number 10 in the US, where it stayed for uh, 16 weeks. The title track was released as a promo 7-inch single in January 76. The single exclusively released in France and featured a shortened version of the track, uh, lasting just over three and a half minutes, which really is sacrilege. You shouldn't be tampering with that. It's not right, that, is it? TVC One Fire was released in edited
1: form as a second single in May 1976, reaching number 33 in the UK and number 64 in the States. Stay, also shortened, and appearing on the same month, was issued as a companion in 45 to RCA's Changes 1 Bowie Greatest Hits Collection though perversely it didn't appear on the album.
0: No it didn't. Bizarre. And it's got the same sleeve hasn't it? It's got that picture sleeve. Weird. In November 81 as Bowie's relationship with RCA was winding down Wild as the Wind was issued as a single to push the Changes 2 Bowie comp backed with word on a wing and accompanied by a video shot especially for the release it got to number 24 in the UK. Another song recorded during the album sessions at Cherokee
1: Studios supposedly a cover of Bruce Springsteen's It's Hard to be a Saint in the City which went unreleased at the time, but was issued on the 1989 Sound & Vision box set. It's funny, because I'm also... Uh, there is a box set uh, of this, which has got a big wooden frame on it. Yeah, Have you seen it? I have seen it, yeah. It's worth quite a lot of money. And uh, well, I haven't got yeah, it. I've got to say. No, that. I haven't got it. But I've, I have had a back and forth with uh, Mark Adams uh, quite a lot about this. We right. used to wind him up, because whenever I talk about anything that I had that he didn't have, right. which is, let's face it's not much. Yeah, uh, He would say, yeah, but have you got the, uh, the Sound & Vision with the, you know, the big wooden frame box. I'm going, it's crap that, mate. <laughs> I will not give it house space. I used, to, I used to tell him that I could go down to B&Q, buy some timber, knock one up myself if I could be bothered, but I simply couldn't. Oh. But obviously, there's a deep-rooted jealousy there. Course. I mean, because it's, it's a rare piece, but not only that,
0: and it's and it's worth a fortune. Harry Maslin and Carlos Alomar have claimed that they never recorded the song, the Springsteen song, during the Cherokee sessions, while Tony Visconti believes the song most likely consisted of overdubs to a track originally cut at Olympic and Island Studios during the Diamond Dogs sessions with Ainsley Dunbar on drums, Herbie Flowers on bass, and Mike Garson on keyboards. Worth ringing up Herbie Flowers and finding out, actually.
1: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role,
0: like me.
1: So the reception to station to station billboard considered that Bowie had found his musical niche following songs
0: like Fame and Golden Years but that the 10 minute title cut drags him off it what? What? <gasps> what 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 The Enemy, meanwhile, called it one of the most significant albums released in the last five years, later naming it the second greatest album of the year. Wasn't the first Desire by Dylan? Well, Um, it wasn't. (laughs) No, it wasn't. (laughs) They were wrong. Rolling Stone's Terry Morris applauded the album's rockier moments, but discerned a move away from the genre, finding it, in quotes here, the thoughtfully professional effort of a style-conscious artist whose ability to write and perform demanding rock and roll exists comfortably alongside his fascination for diverse forms. While, there's little doubt about his skill one wonders how long he'll continue wrestling with rock at all i've played station to station on numerous occasions on the radio but I did open the show when
1: davy passed away and I had to do that show on the Monday night yeah, yeah, yeah. I started with station to station it's a euphoric song not mm. particularly in that uh, surround but mm. yeah it, is it just a it's absolutely joyous in, in a it very is. in a very dark and sinister way yeah, yeah. albeit uh circus magazine declared uh, station to station offers cryptic glimpses that let us feel the contours and palpitations of the mask soul but never fully reveal his face it finishes by saying that it shows Bowie pulling out his most challenging leg of his winding journey. With the Station to Station sessions completed in December 1975, Bowie started work on the soundtrack for The Man Who Fell to Earth, with Paul Buckmaster as his collaborator. Bowie expected to be wholly responsible for the film's music, but found that, when I'd finished five or six pieces, I was then told that if I would care to submit my music along with some other people's, I just said, shit, you're not getting any of it. I was so furious, I'd put so much work into it. Wow, yeah, we can understand that, can't you? We said earlier on that he'd
0: recommended John Phillips to do it as well, so it's a little
1: bit conflicting these stories yeah
0: unless he started and thought oh I just can't be bothered with this right? and then thought oh you know I'll I'll suggest somebody instead anyway notwithstanding that Harry Maslin argued that Bowie was burned out and could not complete the work in any case the singer eventually collapsed admitting later there were pieces of me lying all over the floor in the event only one instrumental composed for the soundtrack saw the light of day evolving into subterraneans on uh, the next studio album Low and after the album was finished Bowie hastily arranged a satellite interview with English talk show host Russell Harty CR, we've Mm. done that, haven't we, in Mm. in depth, to announce that his retirement was over. He had a new record, and he'd be setting off on a six-month world tour, which brings us to, well... Station to Station Tour or the Isolar Tour or what became known as the White Light Tour. Yeah, so after abandoning the soundtrack album Bowie went on tour in support of Station to Station
1: beginning on the 2nd of February 1976 at the Pacific Coliseum Vancouver and continuing through North America and Europe concluding at the Pavilion de Paris in Paris, uh,
0: France on the 18th of May 1976. Now, Kraftwerk's radioactivity was used as an overture to the shows alongside footage from Louis Bunuel's and Salvador Dali's surrealist film Un Chien Andalou the video Visual element of the performances incorporated banks of fluorescent white light set against black backdrops, creating a stark spectacle on the stage, largely devoid of props or other visual distractions. This is what led to it being known as the White Light Tour. Legendary, the stadium featured Bowie dressed in the Duke's usual black waistcoat and trousers, a pack of gisanes
1: placed self-consciously in his pocket, moving stiffly among curtains of white light. Ooh. We've talked about this, haven't we? we about the uh, the uh, the image that he had, and suggesting that he got it from
0: some waiters in Germany. Also so he hadn't even been to see Judy Dench in a, in, in, in a yeah. play in London, I think. That's right, yeah. <laughs> anyway, during the tour, Bowie told Melody Makers' Chris Welsh about his ideas behind the stage show and set design. He said, ''I think it looks like a corrupted version of the 30s German theatre. What with the waistcoat, which has always been a favourite of mine, ''I should have a watch chain to make it perfect.'' I'm trying to put over the idea of the European movement with the Dali film and playing Kraftwerk over the speakers. I'd like to get my hands on the new Eno album to play, actually. I think Side 1 is absolutely fabulous. Great. In 1989, Bowie reflected, I wanted to go back to a kind of expressionist German
1: film look and the lighting of, say, Fritz Lang or Pabst, uh, a black-and-white movies look... But with the intensity, that was sort of aggressive. I think for me personally, theatrically, that was the most successful tour I've ever done. I don't know if it was kind of just because it wasn't as ambitious as before. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that the uh, the Diamond Dogs, Philly Dogs, all that was, was it had its headaches, didn't it? Yeah, of course. It cherry did, yeah. pickers and all that. I mean, yeah. the more gizmos you have, the more gizmos can go wrong. And so, yeah, it, it, if a fluorescent light bulb goes out, you can whip to be and Q and get one. Yeah, them, even I could do that. Yeah. I mean, it would have been handy if uh, the Hard Rock that David Bowie opened in 1972 in Manchester, we eventually turned into a B and Q. It would have been handy if Bowie could have popped in and done both things at the same oh, time. Absolutely perfect, absolutely Who perfect. So, um, after what he later described as a falling out due to a misunderstanding with Bowie's management team, station to station guitarist Slick didn't play on the tour. In his place, Bowie hired an unknown twenty-one-year-old Canadian, Stacey Hayden. Pianist Roy Britton couldn't make it either, so Bowie brought in yes, keyboardist Tony K. This is ironic. So, Tony K. Left, yep. yes. Mm. Right? Hmm. And so uh, David Bowie, at the same point in time, asked Rick Waitman to join the Spiders. He said, no, I can't do it because I'm going to go and join. Yes. Ooh. So if Tony
0: K had a stayed port, things would have been so very, very different. Very, very much indeed. So we, the band that Bowie used for the White Light Tour was known as Raw Moon occasionally, wasn't I it? I not know that. Right, right, OK. So obviously it's Bowie on vocals and sax. Carlos Alomar, rhythm guitar. Stacy Hayden, lead guitar. George Murray, bass guitar. Uh, Dennis Davis on drums. And yes, Tony K on keyboard. Now, on a handful of US dates, the set list included Sister Midnight, which was a new song written with uh, Iggy Pop and Carlos Alomar, which wouldn't see the light of day until it appeared on The Idiot a year later. And the Isolar Tour was the source of one of the artist's best known bootlegs, which was from an FM radio broadcast of his uh, March 76 gig at Nassau Coliseum. A live album was eventually released years later. Three days before he played the Nassau Column, which was recorded and
1: broadcast on the King Biscuit Flower Hour, and Bowie's hotel room in Rochester was raided by police. He, Iggy Pop, and two companions, were arrested on suspicion of possessing marijuana, but the case never came to trial. So this has given us uh, what everybody does regard, who's ever seen it, and particularly likes Bowie, as the (laughs) coolest ever mugshot (laughs) in the
0: history of mankind, isn't it? When you look at mugshots, traditionally, everybody looks guilty, whether they are or not, don't they? But Bowie looks the epitome of cool. It's such a great look, just staring straight back at the lens. It could have been an album cover. Yeah. I'm sure he considered it at one point. Anyway, other incidents on the Isolar tour attracted publicity. When the tour reached Berlin in April 76, there were rumours that Bowie had been photographed outside Hitler's bunker. Then, after travelling with Iggy Pop, his possessions were searched by officials at the Russian-Finnish border, and books on Albert Speer and Joseph Goebbels were confiscated, and the local press started to suggest that Bowie was a collector of Nazi memorabilia. So the same month, he was quoted at a press conference in Stockholm as saying that Britain could benefit from
1: a fascist leader... Bowie would blame his addictions and the persona of the thin white duke for his lapses in judgment. The controversy culminated on the 2nd of May, 1976, shortly before the tour completed, in the so-called Victoria Station incident in London, when Bowie arrived in an open-top Mercedes convertible and was reported to have given a Nazi salute to the crowd. We've, we've talked he about this. Have. He was waving. He and was. they caught him mid-wave. And, uh, but, you know, all the other stuff around it is probably inarguable. So it, yeah. it's, not, it's not us trying to uh, whitewash this. No,
0: but... It, it was a midwave, definitely. It, yeah. And one of his, uh, one of the people who stuck up for him was uh, a young Gary Newman, who was among the crowd at the station that day. He said, uh, "Think about it. If a photographer takes a whole motor-driven film of somebody doing a wave, you will get a Nazi salute at the end of each arm sweep. All you need is some dickhead at a music paper or whatever to make an issue out of it." And uh, pretty generous as well from Gary Newman who, um, I, have you interviewed him? I have a few times, yeah, he's the sweetest guy he's, he's terrific. He's really,
1: really great um, but it is uh, the story that we have uh, told before on the Kenny Everett show was that yeah. uh, they were supposed to both be on the same episode of Kenny Everett and Gary Newman was there uh, watching Bowie uh, at the invite of the uh, well, it was David Mallett, wasn't it? Yeah, it was David, yeah video director, yeah. Yeah, yeah and he was, uh, he was producing and, uh, and directing the, the programme and he invited Gary Newman to come and watch Bowie because mm. he knew he was such a big fan and Bowie we saw Gary Newman and got him kicked out. Yeah, he did. So it's pretty, pretty generous of uh, old, old Gaz to step in there on Bowie's behalf. Yeah. Uh, the stigma remained, however, to the extent that the lines, to be insulted by these fascists, it's so degrading. From Scary Monsters' opening track, It's No Game, four years later, were interpreted as an attempt to
0: bury the incident once and for all. So the tour got to Wembley for a six-night run in May '76. And you were there at Wembley, weren't you? I was, mate. With Steve Hanley, sat in front of the boxer John Canty, who was world champion for a time, probably at that time, and you were in front of him. Yeah, well, it was actually me, Steve Hanley, and uh, a guy called Andy Greenwood, who was a mate of ours at that point
1: in time. And I had to ring Steve Hanley because he's got a memory, Mm -hmm. and I haven't. And he reminded me. What happened is we got the bus from Chaltern Street bus station in Manchester, to Victoria in London. We got the tube from Victoria to Seven Sisters, where his, uh, his Auntie Phyllis lived. Right. We went to Auntie Phyllis's house and Uncle Pat. Uh, we went over there, said our hellos, got the tube then to Wembley. Right. Uh, hoofed on over to the Empire Pool. On the way over, we bought some uh, Bowie lights. Right. Now... I think they still crop up every now and then at gigs. Right. But they are just like little... They look, it looks like nuclear fluid. Yes, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, I know what you it's mean. It's just yeah, yeah. bright green liquid yeah, yeah, yeah. In, a, in a little file. Yeah. Okay, and uh, what you had to do was crack it, mm. and then it would it would glow. Yeah. So it's a glow stick, and so you would take it in, and there were Bowie lights, so you had Bowie light written on Ooh, it, as I remember. Wow. And, uh, and the idea being that you would use it on the night, but crucially, you see, the big sales point... If you took it home and put it in the fridge, it would rejuvenate. Really? Is that so? Yeah. He was you tried him. it. it right, of course, okay. everybody tried it, but it yeah. didn't work. But what are you going to do? It. I mean, you're not going to you're <laughs> not going to crack it. Find a fridge, stick it in before the gig, and then go back to the bloke who sold it to you for however much and say it doesn't work, mate. It's false uh, advertising that really is. But it worked on the night. And as you say, we had rubbish seats. Now Craig Scanlon, who like Steve Hanley, and, uh, yeah, uh, lots of other people, let's face it, ended up in the fall. Yeah. Um. Uh, Craig went on a different night and he had a great seat. But Steve Hanley and I and Andy Greenwood, we were uh, on the back tier of, of Wembley, and it was indeed John Conti sat behind us. So you would have thought it would be able to pull some other strings, really. Right. Uh, but um, and the show—I mean, the show was amazing. And as you say, Unchien and Andy Lu was on beforehand, mm. and 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 the the music that was played, though we didn't know, it, was Kraftwerk. I was very far away from Bowie. And there weren't any theatrics. I was hoping for the odd cherry picker here and there. Right. There was a little bit of disappointment, if I'm dead honest, just in just in that element. And then uh, at the end of the show, we went back to uh, Seven Sisters, stayed with Auntie Phyllis and Uncle Pat, and then got the 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 bus back (laughs) home again. But I was, to be fair, I was only 15 at the time, so you know, uh, a fair play to me, folks, for letting me go. Though I think that it would have taken wild
0: horses and some handcuffs to keep me from from going. Yeah, I'm seriously jealous. You know what? When you read about the reviews, contemporary reviews of this show, or even kind of later on, a lot of people talk about Bowie being aloof and being very kind of icy, uh, a little bit cold and lacking in emotion. But at the same time, you know, I've talked to people who were there and they said, well, it wasn't like that at all. It was a really kind of uplifting thing. And Bowie was doing a lot of his dance moves and all that kind of thing. So it's almost like in retrospect, that scene as this is a very, very kind of cold, almost forbidding live show. I did find it a little bit like the latter, did but you? Then,
1: yeah, but then again, I suppose you know. I mean, I've been looking. I've been looking at photographs of Bowie. I've been looking at videos when, as we mentioned before, we didn't have them uh, to hand, did we? We didn't have no. YouTube, no, of so course you, not. whenever you saw Bowie performing, uh, it was just you know you lapped up crack Yeah, yeah. You, you, you lapped up any Top of the Pops performance or mm. one that would get repeated so I was kind of in my mind uh, and seeing Cracked Actor expecting this kind of shimmying guy with yeah. the, with a couple of props but he was he was stalking the stage on the night that I saw him he was largely stalking the stage he was throwing a few little moves right. which I, I believe is supposed to be the, the same kind of dance that Ian Curtis stole for his own right, routine for want of a better word yeah. with Joy Division Yeah, you know so he's got his fist and he sh- yeah. a little
0: shimmy of the shoulders. Yeah. There was a
1: bit of that going on. But okay, I mean, he, you know, he, he wasn't um, Fred Astaire on the n- <laughs> not on the night. No, i really? Okay, I was there.
0: Uh, I suppose you're right, though. You would be having sort of absorb Bowie and seeing all the videos and pictures and the rest of it. But you know, you'd uh, you'd be expecting loads of colour and flash, wouldn't you? And uh, I suppose people on stage as well that you would recognise.
1: Do you know what? Even at the, that point in time, I did think it was Earl Slick. I didn't know that Stacey Hayden and I, I got the magazine, so I think mm. he might be mentioned in the magazine. The the actual players. Yeah. But I was expecting Earl Slick to be there, but he didn't I really have a foil like Rono, no, you know, not. or even Earl Slick as you as you're looking at him
0: playing. But of course, yeah. it, the Diamond Dogs tour, all the musicians were supposed to be behind the scenes yeah. anyway, weren't they? Yeah, there you go. So the legacy. Bowie himself has said of Station to Station, as far as the music goes, Low and its siblings were a direct follow-on from the title track. Whilst Brian Eno opined that Low was very much a continuation from Station to Station. It was also influential on post-punk. Roy Carr and Charles Shaw Murray, again writing in 1981, said if Low was Gary Newman. Bowie album and Station to Station was Magazines. Yeah, very true I mean, Magazine were hugely
1: influenced by Bowie and and Roxy Music perhaps even more, Mm. Uh, but anyway, more than 20 years after its release, Bowie considered both Station to Station and Low, great damn good albums, but due to his disconnected state during its recording listened to Station to Station as a piece
0: of work by an entirely different person Bowie explained further, he said first there's a content which nobody's actually been terribly clear about the Station to Station track itself is very much concerned with the Stations of the Cross as we mentioned all the references within the piece are to do with the Kabbalah, it's the nearest album to a magic treatise that I've written I've never read a review that really sussed it it's an extremely dark album miserable time to live through I must say mm. In 1999 music biographer David Buckley,
1: hello David, described Station to Station as a masterpiece of invention that some critics would argue perhaps unfashionably is his final record. The same year, Eno called it one of the great records of all time. It's uh, yeah, yeah, we've discussed before. Yeah. I mean, my favorite Bowie albums do change. Sometimes it's a man who, who sold the world, you know. Right, yeah. But, but Young name. Americans is usually at the top there. Mm. But on occasions, it's it's station to station. Yeah. It is one of his finest moments for me, no doubt um, about following it. Following his three Los Angeles arena shows in February 1976, Bowie packed up his house in Bel Air and moved back to Europe. First to Switzerland, Charlie Chaplin and
0: Roger Moore's his neighbours. Yes. And then to Berlin. Yeah, CB for all that stuff. I haven't a clue where I'm going to be in a year, said Bowie, after Station to Station was released in January 76. A raving nut, a flower child or a dictator, some kind of reverend. I don't know. That's what keeps me from getting bored. So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go... If you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Why? so now you're thinking, $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer, actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's Right, Mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as... Interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends. There'll be regular film Bowie quizzes. Bowie guitar tutorials.
1: Unreleased archive written material. Competitions. And perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Knock and Jason Reed
0: Visiting various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a year month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, boegcheapthings.com. Book early.